Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Wallet Hub consumer finance expert Jill Gonzalez. Uh, with March being Women's History Month and the campaigns against sexual harassment, such as Me Too and Time's Up, making national news in recent months, the personal finance website Wallet Hub released its report on 2018's best and worst states for women. Jill Gonzalez helps us compare the 50 states and D.C. across 23 metrics, including medium earnings for female workers, women's preventative health care, and female homicide rates. She's featured on NBC's Marketplace, CBS Radio, New York Times, and Fortune. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jill. Thanks for having me on. All right, so we're going to be talking about the best and worst states for women. Can we put this in a context? Why do we need to know this? What I, I, I'm always curious. Okay, we have the research. You do the research. How are we going to use the research? Is this for us, the consumer, women, politics? What, what, what do we do? Yeah, okay. I would say all of the above. I think this year more than ever, as you mentioned with the Me Too and the Time's Up movement, uh, with more women running for office now more than ever that we've seen before. So for politics, for consumers, for women looking to relocate, these are all definitely or should be top of mind uh, for all of those subsets. Right, so it is important. This, this research is important, for, as you say, for a lot of different reasons. Um, were there any, before we get into the actual statistics, maybe I want to ask you, like, were any real surprises that jumped out at you? I mean, as I was reading the statistics, I'm thinking some of these I was thinking, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Others, I was mm, not so sure why. So um, for you, what, what what did you see that jumped out at you in terms of best states and worst states for women? Well, there certainly are regional trends. You know, a lot of northern or midwestern or northeastern states toward the top of the list, a lot of southern states toward the bottom of the list here. So that, I don't think, is too surprising, just considering how party lines are dividing and what policies have been putting place in many of these states. Uh, I think the most surprising was really that increase year over year in civic engagement, women running for office, women voting. And I think as far as some wages or graduation rates, women-owned businesses, some of these metrics do have more surprising results than others that really don't fall across any regional or party lines. You did this. You had uh, 23 key metrics in the 50 states and the District of Columbia. Let's start with. Well, let's start with one of those metrics. We have 23 of them. We have 23 of them, maybe to go through uh, best states, worst states for women. Okay, so where do we start? So, as far as certain metrics, I mean, the metrics fall across two different categories: women's economic and social well-being, and then women's health and safety. So as far as that first category, economic, I mean, that has been spoken about for years. You know, women making 77 cents on the dollar, they make up about two-thirds of all minimum wage workers in the U.S., so that's not necessarily new or surprising. But where this is most affected, I think, is. So right now the highest median earnings for female workers, and this is adjusted for cost of living, but D.C., which we did include here, not a state, but 
definitely important, was number one. Minnesota, number two. Delaware, three. Virginia, four. Illinois, five. So, again, kind of all over the place. But they're making twice as much as, say, females in Oregon, in California, in Maine, in Montana, all, again, adjusted for cost of living. So that's where this doesn't necessarily fall around those regional lines. So why do you think they're making, I mean, twice as much as a lot, as you say, and and adjusted for cost of living? So maybe take some of those states and let's look at it. Why do you think, is it, does it have to, I don't want to answer the question, why do you think that they're making double the amount in these particular states? It really comes down to the the types of jobs. So Say in a California, in a Montana, we're seeing more pe- more women with those minimum wage jobs, maybe part-time jobs, factory jobs, et cetera, that the women in Minnesota, in D.C., in Delaware do not have. They have more, one, full-time jobs uh, that do not pay minimum wage, salary jobs, more women hold positions of power, C- C-suite type of positions. So I think that's is really what it boils down to is the types of jobs these female workers are holding. In other words, more professional jobs, women more in business with managerial positions. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. So that would be the reason for that. So, okay, next, what would you say? Let's, let's go down the list here. What, uh, that's the economics. Um, you sort of went down the list in terms of the states, Okay, what's our next criteria on this on these 23 key metrics? So the other thing that we're looking at here that oftentimes affects economics is education. So we look just at the high school graduation rate for women here and again, huge differences and this does fall more along those regional trends. Nebraska and Wisconsin tied for first in terms of the highest high school graduation rate for women followed by North Dakota, Minnesota, and Iowa, so pretty much all Midwestern states. Lowest high school graduation rates, Alabama, New Mexico, Georgia, Mississippi, Nevada, all predominantly Southern states, and we see this kind of snowball into the economics as well. Would you see, do you think the same statistics, because I'm not surprised at those states, like you say, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, would be the same actually for men? Because, I mean, and that has to do maybe more with the school systems or the lack of uh, educational opportunities, both for men and women. Absolutely. I would say that the graduation rate falls off, maybe not proportionately, but certainly in the same type of trend. Okay. So, all right. So, that, what, 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 let's go on. Let's, con- you know, continue with some of these, uh, as we say, with some of these key metrics. And then talk about maybe the implications for what women should do necessarily in terms of making choices about where they live or deciding to, um, say, get a job and you know uh, after college or after high school. Um, so yeah, I'd like to talk about the implications of the statistics. Like, how do we act on them? What do we do as women? Yeah. You know. So I think a lot of this. I mean, yes, it has it has to do with women choosing where to live and getting hold of this information, making sense of this information, are they raising daughters, you know, all of that needs to be taken into consideration here. But more so, especially when we're talking about education and when we're talking about government-provided services, that's something that a state-level public policy agenda for women 
should include, uh, whether it's paid leave, whether it's making sure that pre-K is covered so that women can go to their workplace, um, equal pay, reproductive rights. I mean, all of these things really are affected at the state level. So I think that is where the focus should be. And for women who are maybe unhappy with what's going on at their state level, that's where grassroots movements or organizational movements certainly help lead the charge. So let's talk about health care. You just mentioned that just briefly. Health care for women, health care for women in these states. Where, where do we stand in terms of preventative health care, health care in general for women in these uh, 50 states and, and uh, D.C.? As far as healthcare, we looked at a number of different things. We looked at the quality of women's hospitals, the female uninsured rate, the share of women with good or better health, according to the CDC, women's preventive healthcare, uh, baby friendliness, depression and suicide rates, life expectancy at birth. I mean, we looked at all of these types of things here, and there certainly was differing factors for all of these metrics, and different states did well than others. Um, As far as the lowest female uninsured rate, that's going to be in a lot of states that have expanded Medicaid, so Massachusetts, D.C., Vermont, Hawaii, Minnesota. And that uninsured rate, just for females alone, is eight times lower than it is in Georgia, Oklahoma, Florida, Texas, Alaska. So that, you know, when it comes to health care, that really does fall more along party lines than anything else. So what do we do about it? Is I mean, you gather these statistics, uh, obviously, on an ongoing basis. Have you seen any changes over the past few years? Or do we still see the same, you're saying, you're like unin- women's uninsured health care in those same states, kind of the southern states? As a po- um, Have there been any changes or does it seem to just be consistent in, um, in terms of the health care that women received, let's say, in the you know, the posit- the ones where they are insured, where they do get preventative health care, and the ones that they don't? The uninsured rate, you know, since there hasn't been a huge change in the way our insurance works as of now, hasn't changed substantially since the ACA was enacted. Um, reproductive rights, those types of things, preventive health, those do change from year to year, depending on what legislation a specific state passes. We've seen it. A lot of that happened since the end of 2016. Uh, so that certainly does change from year to year. So what what can we, I guess my next question is, I mean, you have all these statistics, all this like, you know, research. How, wh- what can we do about it? How do we make changes and, you know, progressive changes for women? And, uh, you know, healthcare, I think, is uh, is probably one of the key things, um, of course, as well as jobs and getting paid and, and, and uh, getting the salaries or the same salaries as, as it's like male counterparts. But what about healthcare? What do we do with these stats? What specifically can we do? Well, you know, knowledge is power. So just <laughs> yes. knowing where your state stands here, where it racks up against its neighbors, against uh, states that fall across the same party line, states in the same region, you know, that is number one here because we all tend to live in our own bubble. We think, oh, our health care is horrible or, or it's great, and we're proven wrong when we look at the numbers, which is all this is, completely objective from government sources. So, you know, first arming yourself with that, I think, is the number one step. Uh, number two, again, think of what 
you're paying taxes in your state. What are you getting back for that when it comes to health care, when it comes to other things that are issues of importance to women? So that's the other thing. You know, you have a voice here. Good public policy should be good for everyone. It should be good for men and women and children. So that really does come, especially to healthcare quality and accessibility, particularly when we're looking at people who might not be in the 1%, you know, who are in lower economic levels. Those women specifically tend to be hurt the most. So paid family and medical leave, I think, helps, especially when you're talking about healthcare and commitment to not passing laws that restrict access to birth control, et cetera, which we have seen passed or at least in talks this year from state to state. So in other words, we could, with the statistics that we're getting from WalletHub, I mean, we really then, it's not just perhaps using these statistics is a responsible thing for us to do as women, depending on what position we are in. And we have something to sort of, to, to, to back up our, uh, I, I guess whatever, well, if we're trying to get legislation passed or whatever in each particular state. So this is really good stuff for us, good information for us to have. We all should have this, right? Absolutely. Again, now more than ever, um, when people are really making their voice heard from women to teenagers, you know, we've seen some real action over the past years just from, again, having this knowledge and then doing something about it, even if it's not from the state down. Sometimes it starts at the grassroots level and works its way up. Yeah, I think that's important, and I, that's a good point because I think a lot of us, um, and when you talk to people, start will often think of things on the federal level. We're not getting anything done, or we're not doing what should be done. But as you say, the grassroots level, your towns your small cities, you can do something and you can start there. And of course, if you're armed with information, information is power, as you said, uh, it makes it all that much easier. Yeah. Or if, you know, if doing it at the town level is still maybe too much to process, if you are at a workplace or at a work environment that is not supporting paid family leave, that is not supporting uh, breast pumping facilities. You know, there really are things that run the gamut here. That's another or, kind of at the organizational level where you can get things moving. And people talk, you know, why doesn't my place, workplace have that? This is a benefit for me, et cetera. So there really are multilateral efforts here that can work, essentially, and, again, work its way up. And if we take, as you say, you've identified the most women-friendly states, we can take those as examples in terms of what they've done and how they've done it to make these women-friendly, the most women-friendly states, and maybe take a look at the, the opposite, why the other, the states that are the least friendly, what they're doing to make them least friendly, you know, whatever the policies are, the legislation, as, as you've been talking about. Exactly. And, and they all excel at different things. I mean, we give an overall ranking, but, you know, if you're looking towards uh, women's fairness when it comes to the economy. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Vermont all have really done well there when it comes to their public policy. When we're looking at health and safety, places like Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota come to mind. Again, all really doing well when it comes to cracking down on crime that tends to gravitate toward women, whether it's rape, whether it's stalking. 
Uh, healthcare, obviously hugely important. Massachusetts has really come a long way when it comes to that. So there are, you know, depending on what your state needs, what your organization needs, what your town needs, there are certainly examples for you to look toward. Jill, I'm looking at the best states for women and the worst states for women, you know, the top 10 and the bottom 10. And I'm in New York, uh, specifically I'm in New York City, but New York. So I don't see New York on the top 10 or even at the bottom. Where do we stand? New York just missed the top 10. It's number 13. Oh, okay. Uh, A little bit better, yeah, when it comes to health and safety. Um, Not as well when it comes to economic and social well-being, especially when we're talking about those women in C-suite positions. So we're number 13. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's still pretty good, I would say, being in the top 13. Um, Matt, is there any differences? I'm looking at these top 10 in terms of population. Um, some of these states, the top 10, you've got Minnesota, Massachusetts, Vermont, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Maine, Hawaii, Connecticut, Iowa, and New Hampshire. Are those states that are don't have big populations, do they? I mean, they're not like California. California, Illinois, New York, Florida. Well, New York, yeah, New York, Illinois is still top 15. We have some pretty populated states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, in there as well. So it really doesn't come down to population since most of this is based on per capita or shares of the population. Oh. Okay, I see, yeah. So they're in the top 15, so it's not so much population that it's based on. Um, Based on attitude, do you think attitude? I mean, we've sort of touched on that. I mean, you look at the states, the, these are the uh, in the top 10 or the top 15. They're northern states. They're liberal states. Um, what can we say about that? I mean, we did break it down blue versus red. And blue states tend to be more friendly toward women. Their average rank overall was 15th. Red states more like 33rd. So not relatively close here either. I mean, this wasn't a close call. It certainly does divide through party lines. So give us an interpretation. What do you think about that? You personally, I mean, like, obviously it doesn't seem like it to me. It's not a surprise. Um, I'm assuming it's not a surprise for you either. No, I don't think many people would be surprised by that. I mean, again, since a lot of these statistics relate so closely to policy, uh, like health care, like paid family leave, um, civic engagement, you know, voter lines, et cetera. I don't think it's a surprise that since this is so policy-related, politics plays a huge role. So how can we relate this to what's happening, say, with the young people, the the high school students, the the, the march that we just had this past weekend, uh, these young you know, people who are still in high school? Is there any kind of a, a way that you see that kind of maybe hooks the young women up with these kinds of statistics, these young women, these high school students who want to do something about, uh, about uh, gun control, for instance? Absolutely. I mean, just like what we're talking about with women, uh, what we're talking about with guns is, you could argue, even more so policy-related, and it splits in many of the same ways. Um, We looked into states that are dependent on the gun industry. We looked into uh, senator NRA PBA scores, you know, so all of this is very closely related. I will say 
that there might be more business ties when we're talking about firearms. But, you know, nevertheless, these teenagers have proven that they're not dumb. They realize that and they're speaking up about it. They started at the grassroots level within their community and look what they did over the last weekend, you know, throughout the country, 800 marches. So, and the same thing happened with the Women's March about a year ago. So we have seen change, at least from the Women's March on the civic side. Um, We have seen more women running, more women motivated to run or helping out with campaigns. Hopefully we can see the same on the gun industry side. This is kind of switching topics, but one of the things that I was curious about, because you say Alaska has the highest share of women-owned businesses, Alaska. Uh, Why do you think that is? Alaska, that's a surprise to me. Yeah, so that's what I was talking about earlier. Some of these metrics, the, the individual results are a lot more surprising than the results as a whole. Uh, so Alaska had about two times more women-owned businesses than, say, Nebraska, which was you know, one of the top states here overall. And I think that has to do with, again, the types of businesses that are there. So a lot of these businesses are family-owned, are small businesses where women have taken over the matriarchy here and have kind of owned those roles or been passed those roles through generations. And I think we see that more in Alaska. That's a little bit separated from the continental U.S., more than we see in a lot of other states. So, okay, they own the most. How about the least? If we're talking, Alaska has the most women-owned businesses. The lowest state is what? Least was South Dakota, Idaho and Nebraska before that, and the second highest was Colorado, followed by Virginia. Is that a surprise to you? I mean, you know, for a metric like this, I think Alaska kind of speaks for itself, uh, and the others kind of chips fall where they may. Colorado and Vir- Colorado at least more of a blue state. Virginia kind of purple. Florida and Georgia definitely red. Uh, on the flip side, you could say the same kind of mix for the lowest percentage of women-owned businesses. So this metric doesn't see as much rhyme or reason. These metrics are fascinating. These are great. Uh, you know, and I, I do follow you for other, obviously, uh, Wallet Hub for other stats. Uh, but these are, I don't know what kind of a response you get and, and feedback you get when you put out these stats or what kind do you get, say, from this best and worst states for women? A lot of times we get at least consumers reaching out and saying, I know I've been saying this for years or, you know, wow, I didn't know that we were worse than blank or better than this state. Uh, So it's always a lot of interesting feedback when it comes from consumers. And what comes from the actual states, we don't get a lot of defensive uh, rhetoric. We do get asks for the actual data so that they can see exactly where they're doing well, where they could use improvement. That's the, the feedback that we get the most is where's this data from? You know, let us see what the breakdown is. Because I think, you know, when you point this out to states, for, the, for better or for worse, they do want to pinpoint exactly what's happening, especially when they're compared to their neighbors. Well, that's good news. That's great. And, and um, you're doing good work. That's great. I like it. Wallet Hub consumer, finance expert Jill Gonzalez, that's what, who we've been talking about today, and best and worst states for women. And if uh, listeners want to 
get that information or more information? Where do they go? What do they do, Jill? Head to wallethub.com, W-A-L-L-E-T-H-U-B.com, and look for these best and worst dates for women for 2018. You'll find exactly where your state ranks, a little bit more into why. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Anytime. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author, Rachel Simmons. Uh, she's the author of Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. Today, girls are glass-ceiling, busting, selfie-taking world changers, coming of age in an era of historic promise, a world unbound by the limits their mothers faced and unrecognizable to their grandmothers. Best-selling author of Odd Girl Out, Rachel Simmons, cautions that more does not always add up to a life that is happy or well. She translates the often toxic messages faced by adolescents and offers step-by-step directions on how to help girls redefine success in healthy ways. She's featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Oprah, Good Morning America. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rachel. Thanks for having me. All right, well... Today we're going to be talking about what you're. I guess I just want to reiterate what I said in the in the introduction. Um, in your book, I guess the overall message is that more is not necessarily better, and that girls today are really adolescent girls are more unhappy, much more unhappy than in the past than say their mothers or their grandmothers. And they're faced with all kinds of challenges that perhaps we didn't face in, in previous generations. And they lead to a lot of mental and even or physical instability in these young women. And, and what can we do about it? That's right. I, I think what we've seen is sort of a, a combination of good and bad changes. I mean, on the one hand, we've given girls so many opportunities. I have a young daughter myself and 
I know that I'm raising her in a world where, you know, lots of doors are open. More doors are open to her than were open to me. At the same time, we haven't as a culture said to girls, you can go do these new things, but you can forget about the old expectations. So we are saying to them things like, if you want to study robotics, go for it. But we're not saying to them, you don't need to worry about having that bikini body anymore, or you don't need to worry about, you know, being super popular and liked by everyone in the ways that so many girls grow up pressured to to be. And so that's creating what psychologists call role overload. It's just too many roles for one person to play. It's one of the reasons why teen girls get the least sleep of any group of youth. And why I think we're seeing outsized numbers, data across the country saying that girls are suffering from anxiety and depression and reporting stress at often double the rate of boys. Roll over overload. So what did, let's get very specifically what that means. That means that we're telling girls, well, you we hear them, you know, we hear, I hear, I have three sons, but uh, telling girls that they can do anything they want to do. So the expectation is you can do it, which is not true. Uh, nobody can do anything they necessarily want to do. They may not be suited for, for, for many things. So I think we, we kind of start with that, don't we now? Because, you know, as you said, well, we have all the opportunities. We can, you know, doors aren't aren't close to us, so you can do anything you want to do. Not true. It's not true. And I think in many ways, this is an unintended consequence of girl power and of feminism. I mean, we've said, I'm quoting a, a, a woman, Courtney Martin, an author, who said, you know, we, we were raised by uh, were the daughters of feminists who said that we could do anything, but we heard that we had to do everything. And I think that our role as parents now is to help our girls kind of think about what their own values are around success and resist some of these pressures to be everything to everyone. Because, you know, the message of this book is no girl should have to trade away her wellness or her self-worth in exchange for pursuing success. I mean, you should be able to pursue success and be well at the same time. So in order to do that, are we doing something that we're going to try to emulate what we've told our boys? Or is that different? Um, I think it's I think it's very similar, actually. Um, I mean, I, I do a lot of uh, traveling around the country and speaking with girls and boys, and we know that all teenagers right now are, are pretty stressed out. I think what's different for girls are a few things. I mean, one is that we know they have a very strong tendency to overthink. Um, we know that girls and women disproportionately ruminate is the term that psychologists use. And that that is one of the reasons why they tend to be a little bit more depressed is that they're kind of going around and around in their head saying, should I have said what I said in class today? You know, why didn't that person text me back? And this book tries to really talk to parents for the first time about how to help your daughter avoid ruminating. I think another thing we see is that girls I, are know, always I don't on social leave that media. One. Well, I don't want to leave that because I think that's, an, that's really an important point, and I do see that with girls, which gets translated not just adolescents, but I, I, it carries through, I think, to young women and women in general, this kind of obsessive ruminating over things and second-guessing yourself and should I have said this? And, you know, it even takes over when women get in the boardroom and are trying to make decisions and, and, uh, so, and have an impact. So how do you, where do you start with, with girls, with that, to get them to well, stop overthinking? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great question. I'm glad we can talk a little bit more about it because you're right, overthinking is huge. And I think one of the most important things to do for any girl that you love is just give her a language to talk about what she's going through. 
I have yet to meet a teen girl who knew what ruminating was, but if you talk to them about it, they'll say, yeah, I like sit around at night and I worry and wonder about these things. And as I always joke with my students, you know, ruminating isn't like positive. It's not like, didn't I look great today? Didn't I look great today? It's always self-critical. And so one of the things that um, we talk about in the book a lot is self-compassion. So how do you turn that self-critical voice into a gentler voice? Like, because so many girls are incredible friends, right? And they're so devoted to their friends. So part of this is saying to them, listen, um, can you talk to yourself the way that you talk to your friends? Like, can you show the same kindness to yourself? And it's amazing once they do start to do that, it's the ruminating has a lot less power. That's, you know, that is, and that's so, that it's really a simple you know, a simple solution to a, a very difficult problem. You're so right, because women do spend a lot of time helping each other with their friends, their sisters, their coworkers, and yet they don't do that to themselves. So you want to, uh, that, that's a great example. And, and you interviewed, obviously, in your book, the research that you did, um, interviewing the, the children, the parents, um, Talk to us about, can you give us some examples of, of, of some of the stories that, that relate to this, this particular topic? Um, sure. Well, you know, one, one extension of this would be what's, what people call social comparison. So kind of comparing yourself to other people or defining your self-worth in comparison to, to someone else. And we know that girls do this, and we know that they do it a lot on social media. And so I have a story of one girl who um, kind of can't, even though she's a very high-achieving girl, she's a very successful dancer, she can't stop looking at Instagram at the pictures of her fellow competitors and just constantly comparing herself. So that person has this many likes, but I only have this many likes. Or that person won this competition. Why didn't I you know, win that competition. So overthinking can actually happen online. And in this story, we talk about the research that shows that, you know, the way that you use social media is going to affect how well you are. So in other words, if you go online when you're not feeling good about yourself and you start comparing yourself in your kind of insecure state to like somebody's perfect Instagram, you know, the research shows that you're going to be less happy part of what the book is trying to do for parents here is to give you tools to talk to your daughters about wise use of social media. Because I'm not going to tell you that social media is all bad. That's not my jam at all. Um, Social media is here to stay. And actually, I think our obligation as parents is to teach kids how to use it wisely. So could you go on social media and, and look at people who are doing not as well as you are as kind of a negative role model? I used to do that when I wanted to lose weight instead of putting up a picture of somebody who's really thin. And that was my goal. And was, I put up a picture of someone who's obese so that I, that's not where I want to go. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could do that. Although I guess like I would say a lot of times on social media, since people are posting the best possible version of themselves, they're often, you know, almost showing unrealistically perfect versions of themselves. So sometimes some girls, I'm trying to think of like what a girl would say to you if she was sitting here and she'd probably say it's pretty hard to find somebody who looks worse than I do because everybody's just trying to project that perfection. And that gets to the heart of why social media can be so tough on girls because it isn't real. And, you know, a lot of parents listening might say, well, I've tried to say that to my daughter and she just rolls her eyes. And I would say to that, you've you got to keep telling them because... Girls know, they know it's fake, and yet they can't turn away from it, right? They're still completely enthralled to it. So we do have to sort of push past that eye rolling and just keep reminding them, 
this is not realistic. So it has to be always part of the parents or the whoever narrative. You have to just keep, you know, that's that's part of what you do in raising a girl, I guess, to be healthy and, and happy in this uh, in this generation. It has to be constant. You have to constantly be aware that, first of all, they are on social media and doing this and seeing themselves as, as in these negative kinds of situations. What about you talk about... Um, Women, you talk about how one of the things in a strategy to to help young girls is to help them to stop from catastrophizing because girls tend to do this. Uh, you give it. Oh my, my life god, is, my favorite yeah, subject. Yeah, totally. <laughs> my life is over if I fail this test. And how many times I can remember doing that as a teenager too? I mean, this is the end for me if I don't do such and such. Um, yeah, and so, do you remember how like all your friends would do it too? Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's like a bonding thing, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone sits around and they're like, oh my God, I'm so stupid. No, I'm so stupid, which isn't that dissimilar from when girls right. sit around and they're like, I'm so fat. No, my thighs yeah. are huge. So this is like a ritual that girls engage in where they imagine the worst possible outcome. Psychologists call it um, defensive pessimism. So it's like you expect the worst as a way to defend yourself against the fear of it, um, of the fear of the worst. And so what I talk to girls about is, Um, that you really have to stop doing that for a number of reasons. If you can only imagine the worst possible outcome when you face a challenge, on some level, you're going to start believing that that outcome is truly going to happen, and therefore, you might start changing some of your behavior to kind of make that come to light. Um, And I also think it kind of takes girls away from how they're really feeling. So if a girl sits around and is like, I'm never going to get into college. Oh, my God, I, I failed that chemistry quiz. I think the real question for her to look at is, like, what happened? Why didn't you do as well as you wanted to do? And, like, what's the next step? Not, like, my life is over and now I can't do anything. So um, it's a little habit, but it has some big consequences. I always wonder, where does that come from? I keep going back. Where does that actually come from? I mean, I never heard, as I said, I have three boys who are grown now, but I, I, would, I, never, I mean, they have other issues, but I've never heard them say that, for instance, do it, that kind of behavior. You know, my life is over. I, know. I, I don't always get say it. the same thing. Yeah. Totally. I always joke that, like, you'll never see a group of guys standing outside a classroom after an exam being like, oh, my God, I totally fell fast. You know, the girls <laughs> always laugh. Oh, and oh, my laugh. God. That's really I, true. Yeah. And, and if I don't lose 10 pounds by the time I have to go to the prom, it's over. I mean, you don't hear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, totally. And I think part of the reason for that has to do with the expectations that girls are raised with, that they're under pressure from our culture not to be too conceited is the word that, you know, girls often use. Like, so you're not supposed to sort of be too big for your britches or act like you think too highly of yourself. And so the way that many girls respond to that unwritten rule or that norm of, around their gender is to put themselves down. And it's no accident that they're doing it with their friends because, again, that's a very socially acceptable and indeed pressured um, behavior, right, that you should really announce to the world that you don't think that highly of yourself. And, of course, again, the problem is, and as research tells us, this can really diminish their confidence. One of the things, you're at Smith College, right? So this is a a college where women have exceeded academically uh, one of the top women's colleges in the United States. And so you have a certain group of women who fit into a certain category. How do they fit into all of this that you're talking, you know, into your, I mean, where do they come from? You talk to them all the time. I understand you created a program called Failing Well at Smith College. Let's talk about that. 
Sure. Well, failing well, we'll start there. Um, I created that because in my work um, on a college campus, I was meeting all of these incredibly high-achieving women, right? They were smart and, and they were had very full days and they did well at many, many things. And yet, when we really got down to talking about it, many of them suffered both from a pervasive sense that they weren't good enough, no matter how high they went, no matter how much they succeeded, and they were really afraid of failing. And part of the reason for that, I think, as many parents know, is that in order to get accepted into a quote-unquote good college, a lot of young people get the message that I have to have the most perfect resume, so I can't fail. And of course, what happens is these kids don't develop the muscle to fail. Like they don't, they don't know how to fail. They don't, they haven't been through the experience and then they get scared of it. They start to avoid it. So failing well was my attempt to say, all right, how do you take a really smart person and help them learn how to fail? And so I broke down the experience of failing well into different skills. For example, like teaching them not to ruminate, teaching them not to obsessively think about their um, mistakes. Um, I worked with them on things like goal setting. How do you approach a goal so that you can manage when things don't go well? Um, how do you talk to yourself about achieving goals and about taking risks? So all of these things together put up, created this initiative, Failing Well. And and when you're talking about that, it comes to mind is one of the uh, trending words or topics today is resiliency. Uh, to how do you know people who do well are? Isn't that what you sort of you know teaching yeah. them to failing well, teaching them to be resilient? Um, and yes. yeah. And um, one of the things that um, we're seeing nationwide in terms of the data on adolescents is that their their resilience is really, really low. And we believe part of the reason for that is that they just haven't had enough experiences where they've screwed up. Because, of course, how do you get resilient, which basically means like tough in the face of a challenge. I mean, you only get tough by, by going through something that's hard. And so ultimately, what I have learned about girls is like, it's great to teach them how to succeed, but if they have no idea how to fail, I mean, they're only going to go so far, right? Like, I don't want my daughter to leave my house and go off to her life without having screwed up with me so that I can kind of guide her through that. It's not, I don't think I succeed as a parent by having my kid never fall down while she lives in my house. Well, I think that's a that is a problem with parents today. You know, we've talked about the helicopter parents and uh, this overprotective kind of um, way in which parenting is done now. So they don't allow their children to 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 fail uh, or to fail well uh, because they're always they're tr- the parents are always trying to control their lives and make sure everything goes okay. And their little Susie, you know, is. Uh, well taken care of, and they even follow them to college. Now, I don't know, is that the same thing at Smith, for instance? Because here you are in a, is a, you know, extremely, um, you know, an academic school that these, you know, very well-rounded, you know, very smart girls, um, do their parents in, in this kind of a situation, do you find that at school are still there protecting them? Uh, well, I have definitely heard of some parents taking apartments near campus, which, you know, that's for a super privileged and very, very small group of people. Um, I think what's different now is that, you know, parents are in touch with colleges much more than they used to be. So, like, I don't think my parents ever called my college once, right? But now it's pretty commonplace for a parent to pick up the phone and say, you know, I want you to know X about my son or daughter. I don't think that's always a bad thing. I think the bigger question parents need to ask themselves is, what am I so worried about when I think about my kid not hitting the mark? 
Like, what is my fear? Put, like, forget your kid for a minute, but what is it that I'm so worried about? What do I think that means? Um, because I think when you really reflect on your own anxiety about your kid failing and you get to the bottom of it, it becomes a lot easier to kind of change course and have a different conversation with your kid where you say, hey, you know what? Maybe I kind of screwed up and maybe I'm the one who should have let you fail more and I want you to take risks. I want you to try new things. Um, and if I didn't do that before, I'm sorry. So parents have to be more aware of their own motivations for what they're doing. Right. And oh, my gosh. That, our yeah. baggage is ridiculous, right? I mean, yeah, you know yeah. this. I mean, our baggage is, is outsized. No, it, it's you're absolutely right. It's definitely, <laughs> definitely there. Um, so I, I want to. This was maybe a question about Smith in particular because you are. I mean, this is a book about young women, adolescent women, but also, and Smith is an all-girls school, one of the few that's left. Are there advantages or disadvantages, or both, probably, from for women uh, going to an all-girls school as opposed to going to, uh, you know, school, going with having a, a, you know, boys and girls? I, I think so. I mean, I mean, certainly some research points to that. Um, I think it just depends on the kid. I mean, I think different people are going to benefit from different environments. I think, um, you know, there's research that shows that first-year college students who have come from all-girls high schools report higher levels of confidence and class participation than kids who go to co-ed schools. And part of that is that, you know, when you're in class with boys, a couple things can happen to some girls, not all. This is not an issue for me, for example, but certainly for other girls. Um, And that is that you begin to kind of worry about what the boys will think of you if you're too opinionated. That's true for some girls. And you also may be in classrooms where boys dominate and, you know, boys have more comfort calling out and arguing and asserting their position. And that's not something a lot of girls may get training in doing because they've been pressured to be nice to everyone all the time. And so when you go to an all-women's college or an all-girls school, you really don't have either of those pressures, right? You're only competing with people who look like you and who maybe have a lot of the same background in terms of enculturation and expectations that they've been given growing up. But it really depends on the kid. It depends on what they need and, and where they might be challenged. So in other words, it depends on the individual, as you're saying, the yeah. individual girl. Yeah. Uh, but you do want to prepare them for the outside world where they are going to be challenged. The, it, the outside world is co-ed. And when you get your first job or you become a parent, it's you're, you know, it's, you're not just with other women necessarily, right? No, totally. But I would say that what's really great about an all-women's college is that it gives you that kind of incubator period where you may find your voice and you may really flex those muscles for speaking up. I don't, I very have rarely heard, you know, women who go off into a co-ed work environment say, oh, suddenly I was overrun. I mean, usually it's the opposite. They've, they've sharpened their, their tools um, while they were at, at college and then they feel very ready to kind of speak up and, and compete with everyone there. So what would you say? We only have a few minutes left. Um, so, Rachel, what is the takeaway from your book? What do you want us to take away from the book? Well, I think um, ultimately I want parents to really make sure that they understand what some of these cultural messages are, these very toxic messages that their daughters are receiving about success and learn how to talk to their daughters about them and talk about their own values. I want parents to remind their daughters why they are enough as they are right now. So 
and I believe, and I think part of the big takeaway of this book is that when we all understand why we matter, apart from our grades or our salaries or our jobs or our test scores, we become stronger and braver and tougher than we ever knew. And so many, many girls struggle to understand why they matter. And we as parents have so much to give them with some of those simple conversations and by just emphasizing to our girls that their enoughness is the core of of their strength and their success. Mm -hmm. That is very well said, their enoughness. I haven't really heard that term, but I, I like that. Their enoughness is enough. But you really do have to start, I think, right in the beginning, preschool, you have to start with these little girls at two or three years old, don't you? Because the messages start, that's, that's the beginning. It's totally true. Although, as the parent of a young kid, I can tell you, know, they're very confident when they're young. And um, they're very full of themselves in the most wonderful way. But there is something that starts to happen as they go into kind of the tween years. And that is that they start to pay attention more to those media messages and to what people are telling them they're supposed to be. So, yes, it's never too early to start. And also relish, if you have a young child, relish your confidence and really try to encourage what you see. Well, it's interesting you should say that because, as I and I'm repeating again, but having three boys, I had one, then I had two. And the truth was, I thought, well you know, I think I'd like a third boy. I think it's too much. And this is this is really being honest, too much of a challenge to have a girl. That would be too difficult. I find this very, this it's much simpler to have boys. Um, and, you know, because, you know, the expectation, oh, well, she's having a third child. She wants to have a girl. Not true for all kind of the reasons, to be honest, that you've just mentioned. It's, it's a I think it's much can be much more challenging to raise a girl than 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 a boy in the context of everything that's happening now in our culture. Yeah, I mean, I can't count the number of women who've expressed relief to me when they heard they were having a boy. But at the same time, I would push back a teeny bit and say, don't you think that's partly because we spend so much time talking about girls' vulnerabilities, but we don't really talk about boys' vulnerabilities? Because I don't think that boys aren't suffering. Like, I think boys have their own struggles, but I just don't know that we've written as many books about it or talked about it. And I still think we have a lot of work to do in that in that way. So, yeah, yeah I definitely think boys are easier. And, like, there's probably other stuff going on beneath the surface. Yeah, I would agree with that. We have to say goodbye. So give us the website we can go to. You can buy the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, but webs, a website or websites to get more information yes. about you and the book. Yeah. Please visit my website, rachelsimmons.com, and I also have a very active community of parents and teachers on Facebook. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Rachel Simmons, Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.